0: Maybe I do. You don't know what I love. You don't. hate America, Lewis. I hate this country. Nothing but a bunch of big ideas and stories and people dying and then people like you. The white cracker who wrote the National Anthem knew what he was doing. He said the word free to a note so high nobody could reach it. That was deliberate. Nothing on earth sounds less like freedom to me. You come with me to room 1013 over at the hospital, Lewis. I'll show you America. Terminal, crazy, and mean. I live in America, Lewis. I don't have to love it. You do that. Everybody's got to love something. My God, what an extraordinary little bit of writing that is. You're listening to Novara FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's most spectacular and certainly the freest of its radio stations. I am, of course, James Butler. And that clip there some of you will recognize it, of course. It is Jeffrey Wright playing Belize in a TV adaptation of Tony Kushner's set of two plays called Angels in America. What it's about That's a whole other story, really, from what we're going to talk about today. But if you're interested, there's an old episode of Juliet Jakes's really excellent Sweet 212 show where you can listen to me and the brilliant Sarah Shulman talk about it as part of the AIDS crisis, ACT UP, and the political artistic response to the period. Kushner's play is called A Gay Fantasia on national themes, and one of those themes so beautifully expressed there is freedom. And of course, everyone knows that freedom is a key part of the American political psyche. Give me liberty or give me death, for instance, uh, a line that also came from a piece of theatre, for what that's worth. Uh, But what's so extraordinary about that speech of Belize's there is the way that the concept of freedom is turned around in the mouth of an American citizen, a black American citizen, who insists on undermining all of the glorious rhetoric, who insists on showing just how often the glorious promise of freedom is just a lie, just a big idea. And yet, there's something even more extraordinary in the insistence that this is a question that matters. That the contest over the meaning of freedom, what freedom would really mean if it were to be actually lived, actually grasped, actually set at a note not so high, but so common that we could all reach it that weaves together the question of freedom and democracy and arguments over their meaning and even into the lives and the discussions and the contestations and the arguments of the most marginalised and rejected of a country's inhabitants who in turn insist on their rights as citizens to make and reinterpret that freedom. And it is freedom that we're talking about today. And I'm fond of thinking and I'm afraid it's my most humanist side coming out here that human beings incline to freedom like the leaves of a plant turn to face the sun. For generations of political activists, revolutionaries, utopians, and dreamers, freedom has been the watchword of political struggle. People have stood on barricades and in front of tanks demanding it. They've wasted in prisons in defense of it, and they've stood in front of firing squads for fighting for it. But what kind of freedom were they thinking about? What kind of freedom were they fighting for? And if you've thought about your politics a bit, you might have come up against what seems like an uncomfortable paradox. that There are many senses in which we strive for freedom, and not all of them are compatible. Any vast change is going to chafe against some people's freedom, sometimes the freedom of the very wealthiest and sometimes the little freedom that the poor or the marginal have left. The lessons of the 20th century include the stark and sober realisation that movements that promise freedom, real freedom, can end up operating these vastly intrusive forms of surveillance, forms of imprisonment and violence. And the way that freedom is often talked about is freedom from the hand of power, freedom from interference by government. But what if that wasn't what our forebears were thinking about? What if they were thinking about freedom in quite another sense?
1: Sure. Uh, so my name is Annelien, Annelien de Deng. Um I live in Amsterdam. I am from Belgium originally, but I live in Amsterdam and I have lived here for the past 10 years.
0: And Annelien has just published a, a huge look at nearly 3,000 years of thinking in the European political tradition about the very idea of freedom. That book is called Freedom, and Unruly History. We're going to talk about your, your book today, but I know that you're also an expert on 18th and 19th century political thought. I know you've done some work on, on Montesquieu as well, who might come into our discussion later today. Uh, maybe we can start by, by thinking about, by, or just by outlining the sort of central claim of the freedom book, and, and we can get at it like this, I think. So often today when we talk about being free, we're talking about freedom from governmental or political interference and in the, sense, the sense that there's some sort of limit set on the scope of political power. But... Your book suggests that this sense of freedom is a relatively new thing. It's actually a relatively late one. And it's something that emerges as a reaction to sort of late 18th century revolutions. And, and so, so you say instead that there's this older sense of freedom um, and one, one which has been more often in the mind of European thinkers about freedom. And it's one that stretches right the way back to kind of ancient Rome and ancient Greece. And this is a, a democratic freedom. So tell us a bit about that distinction.
1: Right. Well, um, so one of the main arguments in my book uh, is indeed that um, if you look at the history of freedom, uh, roughly speaking, it's possible to sort of distinguish two different uh, ways of thinking about what it means to be free in a society or as a society. So um, two different ways of thinking about what, you know, a free state should look like. Um, And one of those conceptions of freedom, the older conception of freedom, entails that you think that you can only be free if you uh, are able to exercise control over the way in which you are governed. Um, and that's why I call this the democratic conception of freedom, because that conception of freedom sort of um, entails that um, in answer to the question, what is a free state, your answer is going to be a democratic state where you know, everybody can exercise control collectively over the way in which they are governed. Um, in which uh, the rules that we live under are made by uh, you know, the people that actually have to obey those rules. But then there's another uh, more, uh, more modern or more recent conception of freedom uh, that says, no, um, it, you know, it doesn't really matter who makes uh, the laws or the rules that we have to live under. In order to be free, you need one thing only, and that is to live under as few laws as possible. So the fewer laws, uh, the freer you are.
0: I just want to start by thinking a little bit about that, that the emergence of this sense of freedom in the ancient world. And I want to talk just very briefly, I don't want to spend too long in, in, in ancient Rome, ancient Greece, because I think the really interesting stuff comes a bit later. But that the, there are a couple of things here which I think are important because these are ideas that obviously get rediscovered or reworked by, by later thinkers. Um, and, and one is the extent to which that ancient concept of freedom emerges as a sort of antonym to slavery, Right, and then the other is is simply the question of whether that sense of a democratic freedom extends to uh, political decisions over kind of economic property, as it were. So uh, decisions over over what we would think of as the economic sphere. So those two questions. Could you tell us a little bit about both of those?
1: Well, in response to your first question, um, uh, you know, where did this idea? Uh, this democratic conception of freedom come from? Or why did people start talking about freedom as something that you would want to have in a political sense in the first place? And the, the answer to that question uh, has indeed a lot to do with the institution of slavery. both in ancient Greece and in ancient Rome, um, ancient Greek and Roman societies were slave societies. Um, so people sort of lived cheek to jaw with you know actual chattel slaves. And that sort of sparked this idea that it was valuable to be free and um, that you know, this was a, a desirable condition. Uh, and at first, people s- simply talked about being free in the legal sense of the word, so um, as an, an antonym of being a slave, a chattel slave. Uh, but soon, um, that idea of freedom also started to be used in, uh, in a more metaphorical sense to talk about freedom in the political sense of the word. Um, so, for instance, uh, Herodotus, the Greek historian, uh, who was one of the very first thinkers uh, to sort of talk about freedom in a political sense as something you know desirable he has this uh, uh, this you know funny little anecdote where um, you have a couple of Spartan envoys who go visit a Persian nobleman uh, and the Persian nobleman sort of tries to turn them um, and convince them to uh, to you know collaborate basically with his uh, his master his his boss the Persian king and they refuse to do so. And they say, well, you know, why are you even asking us this? Uh, that shows that you are a slave at heart and we, you know, never accept to you know, betray our people because we are a free people. And by that, they obviously didn't mean uh, that that Persian nobleman was a chattel slave, but they, they meant to, what they were implying was that, like actual slaves, uh, he was completely dependent on the will of his master, uh, in this case, the Persian king. So that is sort of one of the very first um, uh, pieces of uh, literary evidence that we have in which you know, people were talking about freedom as a desirable political condition. I,
0: I wonder if there's there's a sense in which we can can just pick up on how, how far this sense of freedom extended. When we're talking about freedom, polit- you know, democratical political freedom in the ancient world, are we talking about a body which has the right to make decisions about property, about sort of uh, redistributive justice?
1: Well, there, was, there wasn't there a lot of explicit discussion of that issue in the ancient world, although we could uh, refer to the example of ancient Athens, um, where you did see that uh, wealthy citizens were were taxed actually quite heavily, and there was also a, a discourse. Uh, so we have sources who argue that one of the consequences of uh, the introduction of democracy was a government run, you know, in the interests of of the poor. Uh, so there is a, a really intriguing source by uh, an anonymous author that historians know uh, know as the uh, the ancient oligarch. Has this uh, this interesting narrative where he uh, basically says, "Well, um, you know." Athens is a democracy, but that what that really means isn't that it is a free government. But what it what that really means is that it is a government run by the poor in the interests of the poor, and that then means that you know rich people are, are in fact unfree. Uh, you know they're no they're you know no better off than than slaves um, in in Athenian democracy. And he gives all sorts of examples to illustrate that. Uh, for instance, one of the examples that he gives is that. Um, Uh, Athens has, uh, you know, a lot of um, amenities that were built with public money, uh, like public (laughs) baths that are used mainly by the poor. And hence that is sort of a a tax on the rich, uh, which in his uh, view illustrates that uh, the rich are, um, you know, are are really, uh, you know, that that, that the Athenian government is really run in the interests of the poor uh, by the poor.
0: There's something really interesting in your, in your account, which is that towards the end, and I mean, I suppose there's a whole interesting literature, you know, really a concern, actually, I think, of, of kind of ancient political writers about the way in which democratic polities might degenerate into something else. But what's really interesting is that, certainly in your account, it's, co- it's you know, close to the end of both the kind of Greek and Roman um, experiments in democracy or a republic, whatever there seems to be this emphasis on a a move from an account of political freedom to a sort of inner freedom, right? A spiritual freedom, a sort of, you know, stoicizing sort of um, uh, apatheia. Is that, do do you see that as a sort of, uh, you know, is that something that occurs as a function of these states sort of decaying, that there is this turn towards a, a kind of inner or personal account of freedom rather than a democratic one?
1: Yes, um, I think you could definitely say that. So, um, you know, in very general terms, um, as soon as the concept of freedom is invented, um, it becomes really part and parcel of the um, self-identity of several of these Greek polis uh, and of uh, the Roman Republic. Uh, But in the end, both in Athens and in Rome, uh, their sort of uh, democratic or semi-democratic political systems degenerate into something uh, more akin to uh, either oligarchy or, um, or autocracy. Uh, and what you see is that il- the elites that uh, have left us their thoughts on paper, the elites of those societies, then start saying things like, well, we haven't actually lost our freedom um, you know, as long as we still have our moral courage uh, and our moral independence. That is what really allows us to be free. Um, and that is a, a way of thinking about freedom uh, that had the potential to inspire sort of uh, uh, considerable courage in the face of autocratic whimsy or autocratic violence, as the, in the example um, of, a, of, a, of a Seneca who uh, sort of stands up against uh, his former uh, pupil, Nero. Uh, uh, but, but at the same time, it's a way of thinking about freedom that uh, discourages, um, you know, calling for you know sort of political change, and that uh, that seeks to free the individual by, you know, by changing his uh, inner or her inner mindset.
0: Mm-hmm. So we should do sort of a big historical fast forward. And one of the things I really like about the book is that it is, you know, a really big piece of conceptual history, and and I think you know it's it's a really valuable contribution to sort of public thinking because. You know, the, the inclination, I think, so often these days, and it's partly a function, I suppose, of academic specialism, is to, is to avoid kind of big conceptual history and say there's, there's nothing valuable about it. I don't know if you have something to say about, you know, the, the use of conceptual history or what kind of drove you know your interest in, in doing this kind of big transhistorical work. I'd be interested to hear that.
1: Well, I'm glad you asked that question, because that is, to me at least, that is a really important issue. Um, so uh, I see my work as being uh, very much inspired by uh, people working in the Cambridge school tradition, first and foremost, obviously, by the work of uh, Quentin Skinner, uh, who's also in many ways, uh, who I think of as a, as a mentor. Um, and you know, he was sort of the uh, first uh, intellectual historians to make this claim that you know, there is this you know, other uh, conception of freedom, the non-liberal conception of freedom. Quentin Skinner ends up uh, describing this as a Republican or neo-Roman way of thinking about freedom, uh, whereas I myself prefer Democratic. But in essence, we're sort of talking about the same thing here. Um, But what I do think or what I what I think I am doing different uh, in sort of uh, uh, in this book, um, amongst other things, is to sort of lay out that story uh, that, you know, others have told in sort of more chopped up bits, uh, so to speak, to really layer that story in a in, a, in one comprehensive narrative. Uh, and I, I did make an effort um, to, to write it down in a way that uh, made it accessible for a broader audience. So not just, uh, you know, my colleagues' intellectual history, although I obviously also hope that they will read it. Um, but um, my, you know, sort of, I primarily had perhaps a, a different audience in my slightly broader audience. And the reason um, why I wanted to do that is that, you know, when you sort of listen or when you read sort of um, media accounts, or there's all sorts of narratives circulating about the history of what we call Western political thought, you know, and these narratives are, they're often quite old. So some of these narratives go all the way back to the 19th century. Uh, like for instance, the narrative that we, that we have to thank uh, our current way of thinking about freedom, that modern freedom is, is, a, is a legacy of the Reformation, for instance, that's, that's a very ancient narrative. That's a narrative that goes all the way back to the 19th century. Um, and I feel like um, the turn of our discipline, of the discipline of intellectual history towards sort of um, ever greater specialization um, that, that sort of uh, leaves these older narratives uh, unchallenged. And I felt that it was really important to write the kind of um, book that would be able to challenge those narratives uh, in a comprehensive manner and in a way that uh, would make uh, you know, a different narrative accessible for a broader audience.
0: I think that's I think that's so true isn't it I mean the 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 the, there are these amazing ideas which which just sort of continue in public I mean you know our idea of the renaissance which still continues is Burkhart it's not you know I mean it's an old 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 idea you know maybe changes a little bit recently but you know whatever I mean so let's do a kind of big big zoom on I I I wanted to to just stop very briefly in the middle ages because you you use um Dante really interesting interestingly and Dante's you know, an interest of mine. Um, and there's something really interesting that he does as you know, so you you cite him as a kind of in some ways, sort of exemplary medieval thinker, you know, not at all interested in democratic freedom at all, right? Because so he does, he writes this this tract on monarchy where he says, you know, um, there needs to be one emperor making decisions. Um, and uh, the church shouldn't make decisions. So it's a kind of interesting thing about the separation of powers, separation of spheres of competence in, in that sense. Um, but re- what really strikes me when reading Dante, and I think this connects to stuff that happens after him, is that for him, there's this, it's almost a sort of fantasy of a kind of perfectly unified political order. There's this huge kind of distrust of multiplicity and and contestation. And you, I mean, sure, you can just call that kind of reactionary, right? And it is. Um, but, but it emerges from the fact that he himself was an active politician and had suffered the consequences of civic strife, right? Because he's living in these, or was living in Florence, and, and he's hugely involved in political conflict, in vendetta, you know, stuff that really at times seems to approach kind of civil war. So I, I wonder if that's just a way into thinking one, one of the things that drives some of the later thinking about freedom which is um you know and so when dante is exiled he he doesn't just say that the side that you know the other side was wrong he goes on to say things like well um actually it's the fact of faction it's the fact of civic strife itself that's wrong um you know and and he has absolutely really reactionary answers to that right the one guy is going to make the decision because he's ordained by god but but so uh, just that part of the question is, is is interesting to me so we then enter into the period of the Reformation. We enter into the period of the Wars of Religion, um, uh, you know, and civil wars. So, how important is the question of kind of internal civic strife to to pushing people back to thinking um, about freedom?
1: That's a great question, um, but I'm not sure that I have a, a very satisfying answer to it. So you know you're absolutely right in uh, Dante's case uh, there is a sort of uh, general fear of factionalism and a fear that was sort of uh, fed by his very you know uh, traumatic uh, i imagine experience of actually living in a in a in a city state that was uh, ripped apart in many ways by factionalism um, so this was not some abstract fear for dante it was a, a very a real personal um, experience uh, you do see that in, in his case, um, that that's sort of, um, I'm, I'm reluctant to say triggered because I'm not 100% sure whether we can say that with any certainty. But you do see that it is it goes together uh, with a belief that what we need is sort of um, uh, leadership by this one unifying figure. And that, you know, even having a, a separate uh, church uh, sphere is in, in many ways something that, you know, is suspect and you uh, might want to avoid. So that is in Dante's case, I think there's uh, lots of reasons to agree with your um, with your view. But you do have uh, a number of thinkers uh, who end up expressing um, uh, views that are, if not democratic, at least closer to, you know, a belief uh, in democratic government than than, than Dante ever, ever came. Whereas they actually very much share that fear of factionalism. Um, so, um uh, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure whether these can, are necessarily, whether sort of this fear of factionalism necessarily leads to a desire in sort of a, a unified, uh, autocratic uh, uh, sort of governance. Um, there's, you know, there's uh, thinkers uh, who were uh, pretty, uh, you know, who were also pretty concerned with factionalism who ended up not making that uh, intellectual choice.
0: Yeah, 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 I think that's I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, um, maybe then we should zoom on a bit as well, which is you know we can take ourselves to to the the sort of eighteenth century and these big kind of Atlantic... We, we can skip over 17th century England, although it's totally fascinating, um, and, and indeed you know, has some of those questions about civil war and strife going on within it. Um, but let's talk about the Atlantic revolutions, because France, United States, I think one might also mention Haiti here as well. Um, and these these big revolutions give us um, parchment barriers. I like that phrase. It's a phrase that I learned from your book. Um, these, these declarations or bills of rights. And I think it's quite usual for people to think of these revolutions as being the kind of the first moment at which and and that they're very much about the reassertion of rights against a kind of overweening or an absolutist state but is that quite the case?
1: Uh, Well I would would argue that uh, to the extent that these revolutions um, try to reassert rights We have to be very clear about what rights they were talking about and and what function these rights uh, were to fulfill in sort of the broader narrative that these revolutionaries were telling themselves about what they were doing. If you look at what the revolutionaries themselves said, what they were doing, uh, you know, it's it's very clear that they um, agreed that what they were doing first and foremost was create governments or create regimes uh, that, were, uh, th- th- that were meant to be uh, more similar to these uh, ancient republics, ancient uh, Greek and Roman republics, uh, than the monarchies um, or the oligarchies of the uh, old regime in Europe. Um, so what they were uh, trying to do, in other words, was to reassert a form of uh, collective self-government. Um, And we can discuss to what extent they themselves uh, thought of these new kinds of governments as democracies. Um, I personally uh, think there are good reasons to think that they were less wary of calling these regimes democratic than uh, some other historians have argued. Um, So I I agree with Robert Palmer's uh, claim that these uh, revolutions were democratic revolutions, first and foremost. But again, you know, we can sort of discuss to what extent we could apply that word democratic you know, If we not want to use that word, I think uh, it is very clear the revolutionaries were thinking of uh, these regimes as uh, you know, establishing more broadly popular regimes. And the role of um, these rights declarations in that whole process was not to say, well, listen, uh, we sort of need to cordon off a space for the individual, uh, protecting the individual against overreading state power. The primary goal of these rights declarations was to say, uh, that people had a set of rights, and um, among those rights, uh, the first right was the right to self-government. I would argue that in many ways, uh, we need to read these rights declarations as rousseauvian rights declarations, uh, rather than uh, Lockean rights declarations, as they have often been read. And I would argue that this is true not just for the French declaration of the rights of man and the citizen, but that this is actually even true, uh, and I am aware that this is a more controversial claim, uh, but I try to uh, develop uh, a greater length in the book, why I believe that I'm right anyways, <laughs> that this is even true for the uh, rights declarations in the American context. Mm,
0: mm, mm, mm. We should just, um, maybe we, you can just do a quick clarification for our audience who may not un- know the distinction between russovian and Lockean uh, uh, rights in, in that sense.
1: Oh, sure. So um, broadly speaking, uh, the idea is that um, if you know, that John Locke initiated a tradition of uh, talking about rights, in which rights are sort of trumps uh, that can, use, can be used by individuals against the state to keep state power at bay and to assert sort of control over a private sphere. Uh, that a Russovian uh, rights tradition is a tradition uh, that um, uh, establishes the right to self-government, uh, collective self-government as sort of the fundamental right, and that, to the extent that it asserts other rights, uh, always says that these rights are subject to collective self-government.
0: Right, and these the, a claim like Rousseau's drives, you know, a, a reactionary like Burke round the twist. Right, the idea that you have a right to participate in government is 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 not only incomprehensible but 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 almost uh, logically incoherent for him.
1: Right. So you see that uh, these rights declarations, when they're criticised by their opponents, a, a major target of opponents like Burke is precisely the claim that, you know, the, the key right underlying all of these other rights is the right of individuals to participate in their government and to participate in collective self government.
0: So I wonder if we could say, because there, there are political stakes here to, to this question, right, which is you know, that, that question, so so these stories about the, the, our understanding of what um, the these claims mean matters today, because certainly in the United States, for instance, there's this kind of you know, ongoing uh, uh, argument from the conservative side of the political spectrum, which is that oh well, it's a republic, not a democracy. So the kind of claims that you make about um, you know what you should be able to to do via means of government, um, well, they're wrong. You're thinking of it the wrong way.
1: Uh, you're absolutely right. So um, uh, and that is why uh, you know one of the many reasons why I think doing intellectual history is important. Uh, because, you know, a question like, you know, what did the American revolutionaries, for instance, mean uh, when they uh, declared that, you know, all men had natural rights isn't just important for our historical understanding of the American Revolution, but it, it is also, you know, it, specific interpretations of what they were doing when uh, the revolutionaries made those claims are being mobilized today to make all sorts of political claims. Um, and sort of uh, one of the main uh, claims that is made today about the American Revolution uh, by the uh, by American conservatives is that it was a revolution for individual rights, uh, and it was in other words a revolution for a minimal government. Uh, and what I try to show in the book is that to the extent that American revolutionaries themselves uh, thought that they were raging a fight for freedom, uh, what they meant by that wasn't um, you know a fight for you know having individual rights that sort of needed protection against uh, government power, but that they were fighting for establishing. Popular
0: control over government. So I think this question becomes really interesting when we think about some of the thinkers who are almost kind of totally canonical to, to this this stream of thinking. I just wonder if you could say a little. I mean, because it, it, it seems to me that we, there is an intellectual tradition that emerges in ki- around this period, which is, you know, to some extent, and you know, concerned about freedom from domination and freedom from command, freedom from compulsion. Because um, it does, this, cause this stuff seems to me to be present in in quite a lot of sort of pre-revolutionary literature. I mean, I take your point. And I think I think I agree that this conception of, uh, you know, people reacting against you know the extent of government entirely is not not quite right. Um, uh, is it that these these thinkers are thinking of democratic freedom as the sort of precondition for these other freedoms, or, or are they just not related?
1: Um, I wouldn't argue that when they're you know they're talking about. Freedom. What they mean first and foremost is the ability to participate in the making of the laws uh, that you you, know, you live under. Uh, that's actually some you know a direct quote of what a lot of them uh, were saying. You know, being free is uh, you know living under laws that you yourself have made. But um, the reason why they thought that this was so important was indeed because they felt that um, this in the you know end of the day uh, was a a hard uh, a necessary precondition. For lots of other good stuff, uh, such as you know, having individual security, uh, having protection against um, arrogant uh, elites or autocratic uh, kings uh, that were you know always that might otherwise be keen to sort of take away your property um, or to make you do things that you didn't want to do. It's not uh, simply that they thought that uh, democracy was a precondition for freedom. They thought that. Um, democratic self-government—that that was what freedom was all about. But they, th- they, the, the reason why they attached value to democratic self-government is because they believed without democratic self-government, um, your individual security and other rights would come under threat as well.
0: So, w- one of the questions that that I think is really interesting and that works as a sort of thread through your account is, is the question of exclusions and the question of who qualifies as a participant in in government, right, who is, who is permitted to make these decisions. And obviously we know, you know, if you're a woman or, or a slave or indeed not a citizen in, in the ancient world, then, you know, good luck having any uh, democratic rights whatsoever. Um, you know, and, and obviously in this period, I suppose, you know, the, the question that I imagine will be on some listeners' minds is, well, this was a period of enormous Uh, slavery. This was a a period in which the prosperity of many of these nations was, um, if not exclusively, then in very large part founded on the exploitation of slave labor. So how far does the question of slavery um, and and directly the question of of African slavery enter into the minds of these thinkers?
1: Yeah, that's a a great question. Um, And that's what's um, really jarring about this story. Um, So you have this explosion of freedom talk, You have all these thinkers arguing uh, that, uh, like Richard Price, for instance, that if you want to be free, and and Price continues to say explicitly, and that means if you want not to be a slave, then you should be able to participate in your government. Um, uh, So there's a huge explosion of this kind of freedom talk. uh, But then what you end up uh, seeing happening in historical reality is the creation of governments that even though they are more broad based than the governments that preceded them end up falling far short from what we would think of as democratic governments. Uh, so that's sort of one jarring issue. And then another uh, even more jarring issue is that these um, you know, more broadly based uh, governments uh, not only fall short of being you know, democratic in our full sense of the word, but they also uh, end up coexisting uh, quite peacefully. And uh, some might even say uh, exacerbating and, um, and enabling uh, a regime in which uh, lots of people are are enslaved in in terms of their personal freedom. Um, So that is uh, something that I I think uh, deserves uh, all of the attention that this issue has been uh, getting uh, recently in the literature about the Atlantic revolutions. And this isn't just an uh, an issue in uh, North America. If you look at the Dutch context, for instance, in the Netherlands, uh, a revolution takes place in the 1780s and early 1790s um, that sort of is sparked first and foremost was by the American Revolution and then is um, ignited, reignited uh, by the French Revolution. Uh, and uh, they the Dutch end up creating uh, one of the most democratic regimes at the time, the Batavian Republic, but they do, they end up not even discussing uh, the abolition of slavery at all. Uh, so that is uh, that is something that I think we, we really need to address. And if you look at current debates about the Atlantic revolutions, this is an issue that is being addressed. Um, But in terms of what this means about the debate about slavery, there's sort of two uh, ways of thinking about what's going on. One way of thinking what's going on is that, you know, these were hypocrites. Um, And there are good reasons to argue that this is indeed a word we should be using, or we are allowed to use, even uh, without falling into anachronism, um, because we see that um, late 18th century revolutionaries Pointed that out to each other. Um, Richard Price, who I just mentioned, a British clergyman who was very sympathetic to the American Revolution, and wrote a long pamphlet arguing that the Americans, the American colonists, were right to rebel against uh, uh, the British Parliament because, um, you know, they were indeed being enslaved by uh, the imposition of these new taxes. Uh, in his view, he also was an ardent abolitionist, and uh, he, you know, he wrote uh, letters to the uh, American revolutionaries arguing uh, what you're doing is not okay. Uh, you know, you talk a lot about slavery, uh, liberty, I'm sorry, but, you know, at the same time, you, uh, you know, keep actual slaves. So, there, you know, something is really wrong about that. So this isn't, you know, when, when we talk about this in terms of this being very hypocritical, uh, we're not doing anything an- anachronistic because clearly they were, there were actors uh, at the time who uh, subscribed to the view that this was hypocritical. Um, At the same time, there is another sort of hypothesis. And this is that this hypothesis is that there is a sort of necessary relations between the existence of slavery uh, in the context of the Atlantic revolutions uh, of the late uh, 18th century uh, and sort of the um, that sudden explosion of freedom talk. So the idea uh, here is that. Precisely um, because people were living cheek to jowl with actual uh, enslaved people, uh, that's why uh, you know they they started valuing their freedom um, to the extent that they were willing to engage in a revolutionary war uh, to you know to, to become free. And uh, I can see why people entertain that hypothesis, but I personally am not entirely convinced that this is indeed um, a plausible hypothesis um, because you also see. Uh, you know, similar sort of uh, fights for political freedom in contexts where you know there was you know very little in terms of chattel slavery, especially when you start looking at the nineteenth century.
0: So I, we should move on to talk a bit about the terror. I think because this, I think you know, uh, and the thing that I, re- I really took away from the book, actually, in some ways, was that this is a huge inflection point in this history. Right? So, so I came th- I came away thinking that that it's the terror. Um, And, and, you know, so just for listeners, the terror is, you know, 1793. Revolutionary France is embattled. It has a civil war in the Vendée. It has, um, you know, various uh, forces approaching it from outside, from beyond the state the Prussian army. And you get the terror. And I think everyone has a picture of the terror, which is lots of guillotining, everyone turning on each other. And then um, the revolution devours its children. It's, you know, it's become almost a cliche. Robespierre, um, Danton, they all end up um uh, uh going to the guillotine um and i came away thinking that this is the thing that really dominates thinking you know and uh, about freedom for the period you know for for really for centuries afterwards and that actually lots of the discourse about you know a, a, a fear of uh, a, an overly free democratic state um is really rooted in this in this experience here um is that right
1: Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. So uh, the late 18th century is a really important period in terms of the historical development of democracy, but for two very different reasons. Um, it is a really important period because the Atlantic revolutions, so the American, French, uh, Dutch, Patriot, uh, Haitian, you might add Polish uh, revolutions, You might argue, I think plausibly, that they're sort of the first attempt to introduce more broadly popular, more democratic governments in the context of societies in what we now think of as the West. Uh, So that is uh, one really important thing that happens in the late 18th century. But another really important thing that happens in the late 18th century is that some of these revolutions, and in particular the French Revolution, uh, fail spectacularly. Uh, so that is uh, what the terror meant um, to people who lived through it and uh, to, its, uh, immediate, to people who lived in its immediate wake. Uh, it, it showed that um, what people had been arguing all along, uh, a.k.a. that democracy was a, you know, uh, a regime um, that was sort of impossible to maintain and it could only lead to chaos, bloody violence, etc., that this was right all along. Even before the terror, people talked about democracy as this sort of uh, really um, fearsome regime and, you know, with a lot of potential for uh, anarchy in case. That was sort of the dominant uh, narrative uh, up until the uh, late 18th century. And then despite those fears, the uh, Atlantic revolutions happened. But then the failure of the sort of biggest and most important of all of these revolutions, the French Revolution, uh, confirms for many people, even people who... Uh, at the time uh, sympathized uh, with a lot of the goals of the French revolutionaries that indeed democracy was a regime that you know was simply unworkable uh, and that could never result in a stable uh, viable political regime that narrative continues to be a very powerful narrative um, throughout the 19th century and you might argue that in some forms it survives up until today uh, and that is to me at least really interesting. So. Uh, we now live in an in an era where, uh, at least in uh, Western Europe, um, for a good seventy years, we've had very stable democratic regimes. Um, in the US, um, uh, you've uh, had a, a you know democratic regime that, despite many its many failings uh, and its failing to uh, uh, include uh, to really include uh, all of its population, you know, still was more broadly popular than you know what was sort of. Current in um, in human history uh, up until the 18th century um, so even though we now live in an era where we have a lot of experience with democratic regimes being stable um, and being very viable uh, you you still see this sort of uh, atavistic <laughs> idea that um, you know there is something inherently wrong with democracy and and that it is a regime uh, that lends itself to uh, either the rule of of, mo- of mobs or um, or to sort of uh, confiscatory regime that will lead to anarchy and chaos.
0: I mean, I think that's so interesting, isn't it? Because it seems to me that like lots of the the, the things that we think of as pretty central features to 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 liberal democracy emerge out of sort of counter revolutionary thought, right? Which is you know, this concern about the tyranny of the majority. It's there in in you know liberal thinkers all over the place, right? The problem of license as well, right? That 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 without a you know without a check, the the sort of de- the instincts of the democratic mob will run riot and they'll you know destroy everything beautiful and you know level everything down. But but then also this sense that there is, and I wonder I wonder how far. You, you know, you th- think this is is right that there is a sphere of kind of economic activity which ought to be more or less outside the purview of politics. That it needs to be removed from, you know, laissez faire, laissez passer, um, as it were, right? Like that, that the economics in particular needs to be removed totally from political um, contest as far as possible.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. So what you see happening in the wake of the uh, French Revolution. Uh, and it's, um, uh, its descent into the terror is the emergence of a powerful uh, counter-revolutionary movement that starts uh, developing, you know, arguments uh, for why we should reject uh, this ex- democratic experiment. And one of the arguments that they develop is that the revolutionaries were wrong and that more uh, democracy actually doesn't lead to more freedom. Um, and that is sort of uh, one of the major innovative moments in uh, the history of freedom. Um, so obviously you had a lot of anti-democrats in earlier periods, uh, but they tended to use uh, all sorts of arguments. You know, for instance, Plato uh, was a deeply anti-democratic thinker, but his argument uh, against democracy was that we should embrace slavery. Plato says that actually explicitly. So Plato is a thinker um, who agrees with the Democrats that freedom is about more democracy. He just disagrees with them that this is a good thing. Uh, So Plato says something uh, in one of his uh, works uh, along the lines of uh, to live under the rule of a a good person might be slavery, but it is better than living in freedom because freedom is anarchy and chaos. But then when you get to the early 19th century and you get to this kind of revolutionary movement that emerges in the wake of the French Revolution um, and the revolutions that preceded it, they develop a a completely new argument, which is that not that we need to relinquish freedom, we need to give up on freedom. But if we want to be truly free, we shouldn't democratize because democratizing means giving power to the mob, giving power to the poor uh, who will use it power to all sorts of unwise ends, uh, they'll make, uh, you know, um, unwise decisions, uh, or even worse, they'll redistribute property, which is something that you really don't want to happen. Uh, and and hence, uh, you know, if you want to protect true freedom, you need to do basically anything you want except democratize. Sort of in the cauldron of that debate, uh, this a new argument uh, takes shape, which is that uh, if you want to create a free government, what you need is not, you know, turn over power to the masses, but you need to uh, make sure that the power of government becomes as limited as possible. And that is the the best way to, to give people their freedom. Not, you know, who rules is important, but ex- the extent to which you are ruled. And that argument, which is uh, pioneered by these uh, very explicitly counter revolutionary thinkers, thinkers who wanted to ha- hold on to the status quo of the old regime, is that picked up by a new political movement, liberalism. So the interesting thing is that the liberal argument for a small state initially wasn't made in terms of, you know, this is good for economic development. It wasn't an economic argument at all. It was a political argument. The argument was we need need a small state because we need to protect our freedom against
0: democratic majorities. So I I think, I mean, there's something really interesting about the the way that this, because lots of the arguments... You, you know, I'm hearing here could be in any of those sort of airport books about the dangers of populism, right? I mean, it's something that, that seems really, really current towards the end of your book, you have a a broad overview of the development of this question over the course of the 20th century. And this is, you know, I mean, I think it's an interesting one because it's obviously been at various points in the 20th century, a very pressing question um, about, you know, the limits of state power, what the state does, um, whether there, you know, whether and where there should be limits um, uh, to, to, to its kind of power. Because, you know, obviously, you know, with the development of technology, the state can do things now that or it could do things. You know, I'm thinking sort of post 1917. Really, you know, the state can do things now that uh, you know are, were unthinkable to to the revolutionaries of 1789. So, because there are two ways it seems to me of thinking about this in the 20th century. On the one hand, there's this sort of Cold War liberal argument, right? That there are these competing extremisms, and liberal democracy is somewhere in the centre, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But then for me, there's a much more interesting, um, much more lively, dissident, uh, socialist, uh, left-wing tradition, which, you know, I'm thinking, especially of someone like Victor Serge here, who encounters, you know, know, um, Stalinism, really, and and thinks, nope, I'm going, I'm not, you know, I don't think this is right, I'm going to go the other way. So there are these accounts of kind of overweening state power and, and the dangers of, of kind of trampling. What I'm trying to do here is avoid talking in terms of rights um, because I think it can be very easy to think about these thinkers as basically in a wide tradition of the assertion of rights against the state. And I think one of the things that, that your account left me thinking is, well, these are also thinkers of democracy. They're always, always thinkers of democracy. Someone like Rosa Luxemburg, for instance, is you know, very, very interested in in democracy um, uh, as the first guarantor, um, so 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 I guess that that's sort of my question. That, so there are these kind of twin pressures in in twentieth century political history of on the one hand wanting to um, have kind of democratic rights over this extraordinarily powerful um, state, and then on the other hand, you know, the, the assertion simply that people should not be um, murdered by the state in you know a very fundamental way. Is it, uh, are those two things reconcilable
1: well um, it, you know I'd say that um, the you know the right not to be murdered by your state <laughs> is something that uh, I'm sure most people uh, would be able to uh, agree that this is sort of um, you, know, <laughs> you know something you would want your state to not do <laughs> um, but I, I guess your your question is um, might be rephrased as um, look. We're all afraid of um, our states turning into the Chinese state and the way the Chinese state is sort of monitoring uh, minorities um, among its population. Um, and that is that is definitely a nightmare scenario uh, that has become a, an increasingly frightening reality. But the question is, you know, what do you want to do about that um, that frightening prospect Um uh, and um, sort of the the typical Cold War liberal argument, you know, developed uh, initially in response to the rise of, of Soviet totalitarianism, which was, you know, in the context of its time, also frighteningly invasive. Um, and somebody like George Orwell, I think, really manages to bring home how, uh, how invasive those kinds of governments uh, could, you know, were in danger of becoming. Um, and sort of the Cold War liberal argument to that, response to that fear is to say, uh, states are dangerous, we need to make sure they remain as small as possible. Um, But the problem with that argument is that uh, we need strong states. And I think uh, things like the pandemic have uh, shown us why we need strong states. Uh, I mean, the turnaround in a country like the US is, uh, you know, it's flabbergasting, right? As as soon as the adults were back in charge, uh, things just turned around completely. I mean, I'm it's almost incomprehensible to me how quickly that went. And I think lots of the issues we've been having uh, in continental Europe um, are related to the fact that we don't have a strong federal state. The European The problem with the European Union is not that it is some sort of overweening bureaucracy, it is that it is a barely functioning um, endless series of compromises uh, that you know is, very, is, is pretty much unable to do anything quickly at all. And I think there's other crises that are rapidly advanced, you know, that that we're going to face uh, fairly soon or are already facing related to climate change, uh, which all require us to have sort of strong central actors. So this dream of having a small state, I think that 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 is simply an unrealistic dream. Uh, But what I think history, you know, sort of suggests is that there is an alternative as well. And that isn't, um, you know, a small state, but that is freedom through popular control over our governments. And I feel like uh, the uh, sort of uh, the, the dominance um, of Cold War liberalism up until uh, today um, and its impact on our thinking about these issues of freedom has sort of uh, led us to ignore this other alternative way of thinking about freedom, where freedom and a strong state can go together as long as um, this is a state that is uh, remains firmly under our collective control.
0: One of the things I was, I was thinking while you were talking there is that, yes, I, the Cold War liberal argument for a small state sort of never quite encompasses the enormous um, surveillance budgets and military budgets of, of um, you know, particularly sort of American imperium. But it's, I mean, it's true even if t- today you think, you know, well, that we have, you know, we've had massive public exposure of kind of you know, internal collection of communications data, interception, recording um, by intelligence services in the West. And mostly we just go, well, there we go. That's something that happens. <laughs> um, and it just seems to continue. Um, I, I have a couple of, of sort of final questions um, which sort of develop about this, this, this stuff in the, in the 21st century. Um, and obviously we, we've seen, I think, especially over the course of the past decade, you know, lots of talks you know, on the one hand about sort of so-called populist, in inverted commas, threats to democracy, and you know I'm very sceptical about populism as a category. I don't think it necessarily is is a coherent one. Um, very often, it just seems to me to be talking about Democrats. Um, but but lots of these politicians do play on that question of freedom, right? They you know they, they, they you know their, their, their politicians might not deliver. Absolutely, they don't necessarily deliver, and, and they might not even intend to deliver. So I think someone like Trump was very good at talking about freedom and had absolutely no intention in, of reforming the state in any way. Um, but they they do seem to me to play on a sense that the scope of democracy is very limited. Um, and especially economically, it feels to me like lots of these um, politicians use the, the economic question and tr- try to translate it to, to the question of sort of democratic governance and, and freedom. Um, do you see this as something that's, that's likely to continue over the course of the 21st century?
1: Well, um, so I guess the real question here is indeed, you know, sort of uh, how should we understand the rise of uh, a new breed of politicians uh, that are commonly you know, described as populists, even though I, you know, I completely share your skepticism uh, of that term. Um, But, you know, these are indeed politicians that sort of, a part of their persona um, entails, you know, that they they position themselves as defenders of, you know, quote unquote, common people uh, vis-a-vis so-called elites, at least that's the language that they use. And and I I understand why it's tempting to sort of um, read that that their success uh, and the emergence of of this new breed of politician uh, as a result of the economic turmoil uh, that our uh, societies uh, have been undergoing uh, since the uh, late 90s. And to read them perhaps as capitalizing uh, on this growing divide between uh, rich and poor citizens. Uh, But at the same time, I wonder whether that interpretation is an accurate one. I, I've, I've read a lot of research by my colleagues in, uh, in politics departments on this issue, um, and uh, as I understand their argument to be that actually, if you look at, at the successful parties, they're successful not because they talk in terms of, you know, we defend the people versus the elite, uh, because then we would have more left-wing uh, populist parties, uh, which we we do not have. Um, so the more logical explanation uh, for the success of these parties is that they capitalize on anti-immigrant uh, sentiments. That doesn't mean that you know we shouldn't attempt to make our democracies more democratic. But to think that this will solve the uh, pro- uh, the issue of the rise of populism, I think you know, might be naive. Uh, And I think a better strategy would be to simply counter their uh, arguments, their xenophobic arguments, and to make the case more strongly, more explicitly, uh, more passionately about why inclusive societies are better and more desirable than uh, xenophobic societies. Uh, In my own country, at least, the Netherlands, that isn't happening at all. Um, So the rise of these so-called populist parties uh, that are, in essence, uh, pure and simply xenophobic parties... Uh, the, what it has done is um, it has led to uh, an adoption of that rhetoric by so-called mainstream parties, in particular the Liberal Party. Uh, so what the what the Liberal Party does is they do, they do not parrot uh, the you know anti-elitist rhetoric, but they do very much parrot the anti-immigrant rhetoric. What that suggests to me is that um, if the left wants to counter those arguments, uh, we you know we need to come up with a more plausible and compelling story about. Uh, what
0: is wrong with xenophobia? That's nice, actually. But just uh, the, there's something interesting there, isn't there? Just about the the because actually, although the inclination of lots of people on the left is to find some sort of economic um, rationalisation for, for for all of this, um, actually, if we think about these these parties as as having only, you know, uh, as capitalizing largely on kind of xenophobic arguments, then that suggests the space is actually open for um, a strong kind of pro-democratic um, and and to some extent sort of universalist argument to be made. Um, so actually, maybe that's a, a hopeful thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, because another thing uh, we should keep in mind is uh, by calling these, these parties populist, I think we give them too much credit because uh, in most European countries they you know they're f- very far from uh, having you know a majority vote. I mean, uh, again, uh, my own country, the Netherlands, is uh, that is a, one of the countries where populist parties are are more successful than in many other um, countries. Uh, but even in the Netherlands, uh, I think um, uh, their total vote, um, um, you know, it, it, it you know it's. Obviously, it's not a majoritarian. Um, uh, you know, they're nowhere near coming close to having a majority of the votes. So, by giving by calling these parties populists, I think we give them too much credit because it allows them to position themselves as indeed the representation of a majority, which they aren't.
0: Mm-hmm. So, the very last question, and one of the things that I think was striking in in the book was actually that it made me realize how, often how kind of contingent the rediscovery of these old ideas and then their reshaping is. So with, with that in mind, you know, you, you've had in some ways a sort of very privileged opportunity to look through the history of all of these arguments about freedom. Is there, is there one strand of this thinking that you think would you know, that would be your, your, your number one choice um, for people today to refamiliarize themselves with?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, so what, what I was surprised by the most um, was how central a value freedom was for the early socialist movement uh how much they talked about the importance of being free you know early socialist movement by that i meant the varieties of movements that uh you know whether whether they call themselves socialists or not um, in the us they call themselves they tend to call themselves by different names uh, they call themselves populists or progressives but in the end uh, these movements uh, had a lot in common with uh, what in continental europe eventually developed into socialist uh, parties uh, and movements what, and what really struck me was how, um, how central uh, freedom was to their rhetoric and to their political ideals and also that um, they didn't mean anything very strange by it. What they meant by freedom was simply um, you know, the same thing uh, uh, as uh, that older tradition uh, that I've been talking about, of democratic freedom, uh, so they were very strong um, democrats. Uh, But they also made an argument. uh, They they extended that argument. Uh, So, in the view of these early socialists, in order to be free, you didn't. It wasn't sufficient to just be be able to participate in a political democracy. What we also what we needed in addition to that was something else, uh, aka an economic democracy. I wasn't familiar uh, or familiar enough with the socialist tradition to know that um, the concept of freedom was so central to the tradition. And that was, uh, I, I find that uh, interesting and surprising. Um, and I think there's a lot there uh, that we can learn from today.
0: Wonderful. Um, that's a perfect place for us to leave it. Annelien, thank you so much for a totally fascinating conversation. Thank you. That's it. My thanks to Annelien to for that incredible tour of a masterpiece of conceptual history. I guarantee if you pick up that book, you will learn something you didn't know about freedom. I certainly did. And that's good. So Freedom and Unruly History is out now from Harvard University Press. Why not go get free this weekend? And then on Monday, let's start to build a free world. I am James Butler. This has been Navarra FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM. I will see you next week. Bye-bye. This broadcast, like all the cornucopia of content you can get at Novara Media, is only possible through the small donations of hundreds of people like you. Join them. Go to novara.media/support.